This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. Today is a great day to study the Bible. As you listen to today's message, I pray that you're blessed as we study God's Word together. As we've seen over the last several weeks, we've been looking in the book of Acts. And it's our series, Turning the World Upside Down, about how the church is kind of following in hot pursuit on the heels of the Holy Spirit. As it's moving and growing and, and, and happening in the world, the church is just trying to breathlessly keep pace with that. And so we saw in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was poured out in Pentecost, uh, on Pentecost, and, and there was the powerful proclamation of the resurrection. In Acts chapter 3, the Spirit that raised Jesus healed a lame man. In Acts chapter 4, the Spirit empowered the apostles to proclaim the power of the resurrection despite arrests and threats. In Acts chapter 5, the Spirit empowers their generosity and disciplines them against deceit and selfishness. Today we look at Acts chapter 6 and 7. And we learn that being led by God's Spirit may not always go the way that we like. So I want to start with a reading actually from the gospel written by Luke, who also wrote Acts. But I I want it to encourage you, but I also want it to challenge you. If you will, stand for the reading of the Word of God as we give respect to the authority of Scripture and the authority of God. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. The Bible says, Then he, Jesus, said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Heavenly Father, may we never be ashamed. May we never be ashamed of you, of your Son, Jesus. May we be empowered by your Spirit to bear witness and share God. May we take up our cross daily and follow you. God, please help us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. That where he goes, we want to go. That how he sees this world is how we want to see it. That the way he lived in this world is how we want to live. Not fearing to give of ourself, but embracing self-sacrificial love. God, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And we need you. Speak today, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 6, the story that we've been reading takes a shift. Now, here's here's what it happens. It stops being a book about the Acts of the Apostles. Now, I know that that's the title we've given this book. The Acts of the Apostles. We shorten it to Acts because apparently Acts of the Apostles is a little wordy. 
And so we make it Acts. But this is one of those places where that shortening it kind of helps. Because in Acts 6 and 7 it stops being the Acts of the Apostles per se. And we actually start the story of a second generation Christian. A second generation leader I should say. And his name is Stephen. Now Stephen's not one of the twelve. The Apostles. We first met Stephen when he was appointed in the first part of Acts chapter 6 as one of those who were wise and full of the Spirit to help them make sure that as they were doing the daily allotment to those in need, in particular the widows, that it was not being distributed unjustly, but rather that there was equity for both the Jewish widows and the the, the Hellenistic widows, the Greek widows, That everyone was being taken care of as that was happening. Now, it only takes eight verses after, I mean like, as soon as we find out who he is, seven verses to describe that Stephen's going to be a part of that ministry. The next verse, so eight chapters into, eight verses into chapter six, we run into the reality that Stephen is no longer waiting on tables the whole time. So even though that's how we were introduced to him, we're going to move pretty quickly out of that. But what happens in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 through 15 is that Stephen ends up finding that there's some people who don't necessarily like him all that much. Can you imagine that? Being called and affirmed by God's people only to find out there's some people that don't still like you very much. That can happen. I don't know anything about it, but I've heard it can happen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed, it says in verse 8, great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs. Well, that's the same thing that the apostles were said to be doing. So all of a sudden, the things that the apostles could do, now all of a sudden this other guy, this second generation guy, Stephen can do, and he's able to come in and start working. And every charge that's going to be leveled against him, by the way, the people that oppose him, guess who they are? Hellenistic Jews, just like him. Even though his ministry was to take care to make sure that everyone was, was being treated rightly regardless of their ethnicity or their culture, the folks that are against him are the folks who are like him. And so they start to attack him and the attacks that they make against him, we don't have time to read all of it. I, I, I know, read all of chapter 6 and 7 on your own, that's the homework. But, but I want you to know the, the charge that they bring against him. They say he slandered Moses. They say that he slandered the law. They say that he slandered God. And they say that he slandered the temple in Jesus' name. Moses, the law, the temple, and God. Who else did they say slandered those? Yeah, this is church. I've asked you a question, who? The answer is probably Jesus. All right, like at this point, I was a gimme. That was the softball pitch. They're going to get harder. Uh, But yeah, Jesus was accused of these same things. So it's no surprise now that one of his disciples is going to be accused of the same thing. By the way, there's going to be someone else in this same book of Acts that's going to be accused of saying the same four things. Moses, the law, God, and the temple. Paul. These are the same charges that are going to be brought up against Paul. That, that, what, that what they're saying in simple terms, what Stephen is being charged of, what Paul will be charged of, what Jesus was charged with is religious innovation. That Stephen is going to attempt to repudiate this charge by showing that in fact it's him and his fellow Christians who are the ones who are faithful to the tradition. And further, that his accusers 
are, the, are in the long line of opposition that God's people have ceaselessly marched out against God. As we close the chapter in chapter 6, it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was shining like that of an angel. Okay, the shining face of the angels, Luke's way of saying the Holy Spirit is speaking through him now. God's doing something through this man. And then we get to his speech, and with his face shining like an angel, Stephen is the person who's going to deliver the longest speech in the book of Acts. That's noteworthy. So here's the speech in chapter 7. The high priest asks him in verse 1, are these charges true? Is this so? And in response to the is this so, Stephen's going to provide an answer. And the way to do that is to give them a history lesson. This is bold because he, a Hellenistic Jew, is going to give the Sanhedrin, the high council, a lesson in Jewish history. Okay, that's, that's the strategy. And in, once again, I don't have time to read it all to you, but in so many words, he's going to say, wait, you have the nerve to charge that I violated Moses and his law? Look at you. So he's going to start by telling the story of Abraham in verses 2 through 7. Beginning with Abraham, Stephen recounts the journey of faith, which began with God's promise to bring Abraham's people to a place where they may worship. Then he calls on Joseph. Joseph, he mentions, and remember Joseph, this is the Joseph that was sold into slavery by his brothers. You see, even as far back as Joseph, we see there was conflict in the family of Abraham. And yet God was with Joseph. And as a matter of fact, the efforts of his brothers only only help to further God's plans. That what they mean for evil, God works it for good, according to his purposes. He then takes his time in telling the story of Moses. He devotes verses 17 to 44 to the story of Moses. And he recalls this in much greater detail, maybe because they were charging him with not appreciating Moses. And so he says, mm, I'm going to spend a little time with Moses since you think I don't like him so much. And he says, maybe you remember that in Moses' own day, he got very little support or affection from his own people. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 39, he says they refused to obey him. He was their savior and their liberator, and yet they sneered at him and asked him, Who are you to judge and rule over us? Who made you judge and ruler over us? That's their question. You can look it up. What's the answer? God, very good. God made them, and a child shall lead them. I've been, I've been begging for people to talk back to me for a long time. This is great. Um, so God is, say, God is the one who made Moses the judge and ruler over them. And who didn't recognize it? All of them. The people of God didn't recognize it. Turns out they have a hard time recognizing what God's doing. They laughed at him as if it was contemptible and laughable. You see, it was in their rebellion against Moses that the people lurched into idolatry. And they asked Aaron, make us a calf, a God we can see. 
Then in verses 45 to 50, he's going to give you rapid fire folks from the story. He's going to say Joshua followed and David and then Solomon. And the comparison is made between, and this is a really important comparison, the tabernacle that Joshua led the people with. The tabernacle which God asked for over against the temple which Solomon built and even quotes Solomon's prayer at the invocation, the, 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 the way he blessed the temple. He said, how, how God, the heavens can't contain you. How much less this building that my hands have built. That was Solomon's prayer at the beginning, at the, at the, the blessing of the temple. How much more this temple that my hands have built. And Stephen quotes him. And says the tabernacle which God commanded and asked for versus the temple which was something Solomon built. You remember David came up with the idea, I want to build you a temple. He looked at his own house and saw that it was very fine and very luxurious and it was rich and powerful looking. And then he looked at God's tent and he said, I need to build God a bigger house. Notice that he also could have come to the opposite conclusion. Maybe I don't need this big a house. If God can be happy in a tent, maybe I should be happy in a tent. But he doesn't. Instead, he wants to remake God in the image of the, well, himself and the gods that the, the nations around him have. And he says, we need to get God a nicer house. And so he says, I'm going to build you a nice house. And God's response is really interesting. He says, uh, why did I ask you to build me a house? He said, Don't, do you remember when I talked to you, I told you I was going to build you a house. That I would make your house great. That I would place your descendants on the throne forever. It's, I, don't, I don't need a house built by you. I, I, I'll build your house. Besides, you're a man with blood on your hands. And just listen, don't worry. Your descendant is going to build me a house. And in the next chapter, Solomon says, I'll build a temple. And we read it and we go, well, there it is. David's, David's descendant built a house. Is that what Stephen is saying? The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? My hand, Isaiah 66 is what he's quoting, has made these things. I don't need things made by your hands. By the way, that's a really important thing because traditionally we tend to think of the, the things made by God and the things made by us. But the difference is the things made by God are permanent and the things made by us are impermanent. That's the way we tend to think of things. Ours are temporary, his last forever. That's true, but that's not all he's saying here. Because what you may not understand is that outside of the New Testament, the word for made with human hands, whether you choose the Septuagint and go with the Greek of keropoietos, or I'm sorry, keropoietos, I see Greg out here and I got to get my endings correct. Or we take the Hebrew, ma'aseh, yad, the work of my hands, the work of my hands, what my hands have made. That phrase, however you want to take it, 
It's used 54 times in the scriptures. And most of them, almost all of them, refer to the practice of idolatry. It talks about those gold and silver idols that you made with your hands. The prophets say, you sculpted that out of your own, with your own hands, and then you bowed down to it and prayed to it. That what's made with human hands, it's not just not going to last as long as what God has made. It's usually like that calf I just mentioned. Something made that we tend to worship. And he says, that's that's the real issue here. It's clear that Stephen sees Solomon's temple. By the way, uh, Jesus talks about tearing down this temple that you built with your own hands. This temple built by human hands. I'll destroy it in three days. I'll raise it back up. And then, if I remember, there's going to be even some discussion of when Paul has to talk about the covenant people and who are the covenant people, he's going to say something like, those who are, who are of the circumcision group, that done with human hands. As opposed to you who are the true. Do you see the comparison? That it... This, this, is, this is kind of jargon or code language, but guess what? He's talking to the people who know the jargon, and they're bothered by it. Because it becomes clear that Stephen sees Solomon's temple as an act of apostasy, if not implicitly, idolatry. And thus his opponent's devotion to the temple is seen as disobedience to God. Even more, one more disobedience in a long line of disobediences to God. Now you say, hold on, Adam. God put his name there. He put his glory there in the temple. Yes, he did. I can't tell you any other way than to say God is all-powerful. God is faithful. God is a God of covenant. And God works through his people even when his people are not doing the things they ought to do. God's grace is amazing. And so he comes to inhabit us. Flawed and and, and deeply weak people. And yet he loves us and is with us. And we are his and he is ours. And he makes his dwelling place there. Now I would point you to Ezekiel and point out in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 6. Also that glory got right up and left. Because he's not limited to that place. Because how much... How much could God be held by those human hands, things that human hands have made? And then after Ezekiel, the next time God's glory makes an appearance in the temple, it's when Jesus steps across the threshold at age 12. And Jesus tells you, you know, something greater than the temple has shown up. I mean, the temple, after all, was the place where God was supposed to dwell here on this earth. And then Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. It's almost like he's saying there's a place where God dwells here on this earth and it's not this building. It's me, Jesus says. I'm your temple. I'm the thin space where heaven and earth collide. I'm where the sacrifice will be offered. I am the sacrifice. 
And Stephen sees it. And he says, you know, y'all's devotion to Solomon's temple is just showing that you don't see what's happening in front of you. You're not following what God is doing. And you're throwing a tantrum about it. And so, borrowing a phrase from Amos, he calls them stiff ne- Well, okay, maybe it's not Amos. It's, well, it is Amos, but it, it may be Jeremiah too. You stiff-necked... Wait, no. It's not just Jeremiah. It's also... Um, he, he borrows it from Moses. That's right. The stiff-necked... No, you know what? He borrows it from Yahweh, because it was actually God who first called them this. You stiff-necked people... Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You guys still don't want to do it God's way. You want to do it yours. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him too. You who received the law that was given through angels, but you haven't obeyed it. He said, your problem isn't that somehow we're doing things new and wrong. Your problem is that you've never understood what God was doing. That I can march you through your whole history and y'all never seem to get what God's spirit is up to. And he sent the Messiah and you murdered him. You see, Stephen, oh, Stephen's speech seals his doom. Look at verses 54 and following, and I want to read the end of this. The end of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Stephen doesn't speak blasphemy against Moses or God, but he does utter the blasphemous assertion that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. Stephen uses the title Son of Man. By the way, that's not a term that gets used often in the New Testament other than by Jesus. So I see the Son of Man. And, and this is exactly who Jesus is, and they know it because it's a not-so-veiled reference to Daniel 7 that talks about one like the Son of Man standing next to the Ancient of Days and coming in and bearing judgment on the world. That for Stephen, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who now rules over all and must be acknowledged and obeyed or else must be rejected at the peril of rejecting God himself. And so the accusers now stand accused. 
The storm that has been steadily gathering force throughout Acts now finally breaks loose with all fury. And the vision of Christ's glory sets every demon loose. And any semblance of a proper judicial proceeding vanishes as an angry mob breaks loose to drag Stephen outside the gates of the holy city to murder him. And as Stephen dies, he utters a prayer. Interestingly, it's from Psalm 31.5, but he's modeled it. Uh, by the way, that short, it's a short Jewish prayer about bedtime, about going to sleep. Lord, receive my spirit, hold my spirit. Except for one crucial modification. Stephen addresses his prayer to the Lord Jesus. Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus' name is invoked at the hour of his death. And then he asks Jesus to forgive his enemies. Jesus' followers not only live like Jesus, they die like Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing were the words of Jesus on the cross. Okay. So what? I mean, that's, that was a, a, a serious theological load of a text, man. I mean, there's a lot of freight in that. But, but what does that mean for us, Adam? Well, here's what I think it means. At very least, this would be included... The church is a community of truth and suffering. The church is a community of truth and suffering. When I say we're a community of truth, pay attention to what happens in this text. Stephen's speech reminds us that one of the most significant aspects of our legacy as God's people is the ability to use Scripture, our own story, as a means of self-reflection and self-criticism. That judgment begins with God's house. And it's delivered through the courageous determination to tell our own history honestly. Especially when we realize that the church has now in many parts of the world traded places with the council who bore the brunt of Stephen's charges. What would Stephen's account of the faithfulness of the church whose history began with the stories of bold and compassionate martyrs, what would it be about the church that now contains stories of the church's silence and complicity in Auschwitz and Buchenwald? What would Stephen's account of the faithfulness of the church be in the face of the American church's silence and complicity and slavery? Would he marvel that the church has somehow managed to swallow its tongue in the face of so much systemic injustice? You see, this is why we need reminded that in addition to being a community of truth, we also are a community of suffering. 
Stephen died for the same faith by which he lived. And I worry that most of the time I do neither. Not only do I not die for it, sometimes I don't even live for it. And instead, I've allowed the world to concoct a polite, civil, mentally balanced religion. I say mentally balanced, not because I think we're irrational, although I do think faith is somewhat irrational. I, I think it's because when we describe people who, who um, die for what they believe, we tend to think it's because they're a little bit crazy. All right. I mean, I could use a non-Christian example, although it's Christian. Man, see, I'm getting caught in my words. Y'all remember, I, I can't, I'm sorry, guys. This is going to be for the old folks in the room, okay? Now, I need you to listen because it's going to be a big point. But I just, stay with me. Do the rest of you remember Jim Jones? Okay, his people literally drank the Kool-Aid and then died in mass. They committed a mass suicide in following Jim Jones, false teacher. Okay, so what's happening here when we describe that there are two major theories of historians and, and, and theologians when they describe what's going on with Jim Jones. What happened with that group? First group, he preyed on those who were weak, who were mentally unable and incapable of understanding. He preyed on them, and in his predatory nature, he took advantage of their inability to reason out what it was he was doing. They were irrational, so they did that. Okay, he took advantage of their weakened mental state. Or that what he did was he basically found people. It's not that they weren't smart. It's that they themselves were irrational and they worked themselves up into a frenzy. In either explanation, death is irrational. I'm not trying to get you to drink the Kool-Aid this morning, nor will I ever. Um, but I use that to make the point that when we talk about people who are willing to die for what they believe, we generally don't think it's very mentally balanced. And that's where that phrase comes from. And so I worry that we've allowed the world to concoct a polite, civil, mentally balanced religion that makes us quiet and comfortable. And they give it to us, and we drank the Kool-Aid. And we domesticated the Christian gospel. Maybe the church's biggest problem today is a courage deficit. That we want the church to be popular and comfortable, but popular and comfortable don't always tell the truth. And people, leaving are, people are leaving our popular and comfortable faith because no matter how popular or comfortable we try to make it in their lives, they're catching hell. And they don't need a popular church. 
They need a church with guts. A church with the sheer courage to stand up and ask the world around us just what in God's name is going on around here. To quote Cornell West, he says, It's like the people in the world are saying to us, Don't tell me about your success, church. I want to know how deep your love is. Don't tell me about your achievements and accomplishments, church. I want to know who you're serving. Don't tell me about your religion. Tell me about the God you worship. The church has to get back to being the church of the gospel of the resurrection. Because that's what changes lives. That's what transforms communities. That's what's so compelling about our community. That we have to bear witness to love and justice right now. We must let the Spirit lead us to be a community that takes seriously the call to care for those in need around us. Right after this story, and I know my time's up. Right after this story. I'm not done, I just know my time's up. (laughs) I love you, but God's laid this on my heart, so... Right after this, Stephen faces persecution. But it's not just Stephen. That's not an isolated incident. It says at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul goes out through the whole region and he's, and he's breathing out threats against the church. And he's, he's working out the persecution of the church. And it gets so bad that it scatters the, the, the Christians all throughout Judea and Samaria. Which should ring a bell because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told them, I'm going to send you into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the world. And they were like, that sounds awesome. We're going to grow? Yes, it sounds awesome. But sometimes the means of growth is what? Persecution. Because they had to be scattered by the persecution before they got to Judea and Samaria. That God once again takes the evil in this world, the persecution and opposition to the church, and he manages to turn it to work within his purposes. That's how faithful God is. And there's not one thing, not even our persecution, that God can't use to fulfill his plan. Here's where I want to close. I want to look at uh, Philippians really quickly. Not the whole book. But most of it. <clears throat> no, I'm just playing. Uh, Philippians, I'm, I'm going to read from chapter 3. But I want you to know in, in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul, who we just met, more on that in a few weeks, tells disciples of Jesus that they're supposed to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation in which they hold out the word of life. You're supposed to shine like stars. And here's what's amazing. Paul tells them that knowing full well that the world loves darkness more than it loves light. That as Christians, we believe that we have a spirit that is stronger than this world and a hope that is stronger than this world. But in this world, we will have trouble. And so we who are set apart are meant to live set apart. And the old adage is true that what's popular is not always right and what's right is not always popular. But if the world can't tell the difference between the church and itself, it's because the church has sold its soul. Has sold out and has become so enamored and enmeshed with the world around it that it has quenched the spirit, which is the one that sets it apart. 
You see, it turns out that this gospel thing turns the whole world upside down. Now look at what he says in verses 7 and following. Paul writes, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from faith or from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Stacking up all of my best religious experiences and successes doesn't get me anywhere, but knowing Christ is the only thing I put my confidence in. There's one thing that has value, knowing Christ as Lord. Everything else is such a distant second that in a moment, in that, in that moment, Paul says it's, well, the NIV has cleaned it up as garbage. It turns out it's a word his mama wouldn't be too happy that he said. And then he says, I want my whole life. If you read verses in 10 and 11 again, I want my whole life to be one long participation in Jesus. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in suffering, to come like him in his death. One long participation in Jesus. But here's what I've come to know about myself. And so confession time as we wrap up. In reality, I want the first half of verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Anyone with me? You want that? Amen. Amen. I do not want the second half. I, I don't really want participation in his sufferings. And I don't really want to die. And God says to me, Adam, you, you know what the word resurrection means, right? And I say, yeah. It means we win. And he goes, no, 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 no. Simplify it. What does the word mean? What's the definition of resurrection? And I say, well, I mean, it means to come back to life. Come back to life from what? Well, from death. Well, then you can't have the first half of verse 10 unless... But unless you have the second half, you can't get the first half. If you don't die... You can't be resurrected. There there is no first half without the second half. Kenny, go ahead and bring your team up. You see, suffering, being a community that tells the truth and that lives the truth and that suffers for it, suffering is a part of the Jesus experience. And a life without suffering, without criticism from the world, without rejection from the system, without marginalization from the world, is a life that's not holy. 
Holiness makes us so different from the world that they notice it makes us light. And the darkness doesn't understand or like it. And it makes us so much light that we love them anyway and gladly give our lives for them every time. Just like Jesus would. As a community of truth and suffering, we believe that dying is a necessary part of the Jesus experience. Especially dying to yourself. Your pride, your worldly ambitions, and your sinful addictions, and your comfort. And this is why we step into the waters of baptism and let God do his work. That if we walk into that water and submit ourselves to that death, We are buried under that water so that God can raise us by the power of His Spirit into new life. And then you will not be the work of your own hands. You will be God's eternal work. His masterpiece. His craftsmanship. Thank you for listening to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Our hope is that it was a blessing to you. If you would like someone to study with or pray with, do not hesitate to reach out to us through our website, rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.